present to you Mr. Mark O'Halloran who is a multi-award winning screenwriter and actor. He's the Mahan behind some of the most iconic Irish films um, including Adam and Paul in Garage and the soon to be released Rialto. Um, you will have recently seen him on Shane Meadows' The Virtues um, in his number of acting roles as well. Um, so I'm going to let him take over. Thank you Mark. I put the stopwatch on there um, because uh, I, I'm worried that I won't have enough to say because actually I have nothing at all to say, <laughs> but nothing's going to stop me saying it. Um, during the course of this, just to let you know, just a trigger warning, I will be quoting Roland Barthes and I will also be quoting Wittgenstein. So if you want to leave now, you can do so. Um, I think that the substance of the thing unsaid or unspoken or whatever it is, the substance, what is the, 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 the title? The substance of the thing... Not seen, exactly. The substance of the thing not seen that I wish to speak about is how you get to become a writer or how you take a project and, and, and embody yourself as a writer when you haven't been that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about my own background, my own pretending to be a writer, and the, the, the process I went about with, uh, with constructing Adam and Paul and what I learned along the way. So I'm from Ennis County Clare. Uh, I'm the eighth of ten children. Uh, my father worked in the telecom errand, uh, or the Post and Telegraphs as it was known back then. My mother worked in the betting office. We lived in a very small, 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 small house. There was uh, my parents' room, the boys' room, and the girls' room. Uh, in the boys' room, there were three sets of bunk beds, and uh, it was kind of like a rhinoceros cage at some points. Um, uh, it was a very rich environment for storytelling in a weird sort of way. Uh, you could say. And uh, in Ennis at the time, there was no cinema. Just kind of a drawback if you wanted to be a screenwriter. Uh, we didn't have a video recorder, so we didn't, I didn't get to see much except what RTE showed, which was generally chitty chitty bang bang five times a year. Um, also, I never went to the theatre until I was 20 years of age. So, uh, I would say that I was kind of handicapped when it came to the you know, the, having the basic skills of, of being a writer. And when I left school, I got a very average uh, leaving certificate. Uh, I didn't go to college. Instead, I went to Amsterdam, where I worked in a steel mill for a year, which is fabulous. Uh, I engaged in gay life when I was out there, which was fabulous. Um, I remember the first time I stepped into a gay bar in Amsterdam. I was, I don't know, I was 19 years of age, and I just looked around at all these guys going like, oh my God. And this English tourist must have realised I looked very frightened because here I was from the west of Ireland wearing a Dunstore's anorak um, <laughs> in the middle of all this high fashion. And uh, he said, are you all right, mate? And I replied to him, are all these guys gay? That's what I said. <laughs> Which is kind of fun. But anyway, I came back to Ireland and I decided I, I would like to write. I would like to write. And, uh, and I read an article about how you become a writer. And it said, the main thing it said was, write what you know. And I realized I knew nothing. <laughs> so I parked the idea of being a writer for 10 years. But in the meantime, I kind of educated myself. I became an actor, and uh, I read lots of scripts. But also, I began to diarize. And the reason I began to diarize was... 
uh, once when I was 21 years of age, I tried to remember something I'd done in the last year and I couldn't remember anything. And that was kind of frightening. I thought, God, my life is slipping by, so I'm going to write every single day what I do, even if it's really boring. And I've got about, I don't know, probably 30 years of diaries now. It's sort of shaping up to be one of the most boring documents in the whole history of Western literature, which is fabulous. And I look forward to the person who has to go through it when I'm dead. Uh, But, interestingly enough, one of the things that I did feel being from the background I was from, having that lack of education and la la la, was that I didn't have stories to tell. And so how do I search out stories? How do I find stories? Even though I was writing down everything I was doing every day, or if I saw something on the street, I'd write it down, because I thought if I didn't write it down, then it was going to disappear, and it was like as if it didn't happen. And so I began to read sort of, you know, more intellectual books, and I read this thing by Roland Barthes, and in it he says... There are countless forms of narrative in the world. First of all, there is a prodigious variety of genres, each of which branches into a variety of media, as if all substances could be relied upon to accommodate man's stories. Among the vehicles of narrative are articulated language, whether oral or written. Pictures still are moving, gestures and an ordered mixture of all these substances. Narrative is present in myth, legend, fables, tales, short stories, epics, history, tragedy, drama, comedy, pantomime, paintings, stained glass windows, movies, local news, conversations. Moreover, in this infinite variety of forms, it is present at all times, in all places, in all societies. Indeed, narrative starts with the very history of mankind. There is not There has never been anywhere any people without narrative. All classes, all human groups have their stories, and very often these stories are enjoyed by people of different and even opposite cultural backgrounds. Like life itself, it is there, international, trans-historical, trans-cultural. And what that said to me was that not only do we carry all the history of all the narratives we learned in our families, my rhinoceros cage that I grew up in at home, or even this simple, this is my grandmother's ring, uh, her wedding ring. And my grandmother used to live with us, and she'd sit by the fire, and she'd tell me stories, and I was really fascinated. She smoked a pipe. And uh, her husband-to-be fought in the First World War, and as he was coming home through Birmingham in 1916, he picked up this wedding ring, and he made it through the 1916 Rising in Dublin, all the way to Limerick, where he put this wedding ring on her finger, and they were married. And I thought, that's really lovely. Except the only thing is that I never met my grandmother. My grandfather never lived in, or never was in the First World War. The the ring is my grandmother's, but it was given to me by my mother, because because she said I had lovely fingers. Um, (laughs) So through that kind of exercise that I'm just showing you, I realized you could move stories around. You can still invest a, a subject, a, a, an object with a story, but you can move it around. And I thought that was very interesting. I then began reading more, and I began to read from Wittgenstein. And Wittgenstein, at one point, said, I'll give you a very bad summation of it, and some philosopher will probably tell me I'm wrong. But he said that the only... that. There's no philosophical problems in the whole world. The only thing that exists in the world are, are, are linguistic problems. And the reason for this is that language fails to say exactly what it is we mean to say. Every time we try and say something, language falls short. And in that gap between intention and the words that we speak, 
there is misunderstanding and hatred and fear and doubt and broken hearts and failure and all of those things. And it's for that reason that art exists. It's for that reason that we tell stories. Because if we don't tell stories, then all we're left with is failure and heartbreak and doubt and pain and all of those things. And so I began to look out my window where I was living in Dublin. And I'd come to Dublin. I'd been to Amsterdam, but they've, the type of heroin addicts they have in Amsterdam are kind of... They don't live on the streets in the way that I saw them living in Dublin. And I was kind of shocked when I got there that this, there was this sort of strange dance going on, I thought, throughout Dublin, this kind of opiate... Uh, junkie, I don't like the word, but junkie dance going on. I saw this boy on O'Connell Street on my first week in, in Dublin, and he had the, the needle of a hypodermic needle in one, between one finger and thumb, and uh, a cigarette which was burnt down to, to, uh, to the filter in between his other two fingers. And he fell over like this, and it took him 15 minutes or thereabouts, I thought. It was actually about seven minutes, I think, I timed it of him falling down to the ground before his arse cheek fit on the ground. Now, I was studying uh, mime at the time in drama school, and I realised that was incredible use of the body there. <laughs> but I also began to think, you know, these, these boys and girls wandering the city, they, they are given a generic name, the junkies, and we step over them. I, I remember saying to people, God, did you see the thing that the, 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 that, that heroin addict did on the street? And they'd go, oh, what? Oh, there? Oh, no, I didn't see anything. And so I began to keep what I called um, my, my junkie diaries, where I would look at what I saw the heroin addicts doing on O'Connell Street and thereabouts, and, I, uh, and I'd write them down, because I felt I had a duty to do it, because if, if I didn't write it down, nobody would remember it, or something like that. And uh, at one point, I saw these two uh, women in their 20s fighting over a chalk ice, uh, and one of them was going, it's my chalk ice, and the other was going, no, it's my chalk ice, it's my chalk ice, it's my chalk ice. And then the chalk ice fell off the stick onto the ground. And I thought it was incredibly sad and incredibly funny at the same time. And I thought, well, that's something that I could write about. And I realized that write what you know isn't actually the truth. It's write from what you know. Or it's write the experiences that you see. Because narrative is all around us. It's there for us to pick up. And in fact, what I learned was to be a writer, you actually should be getting out of the way. What you know doesn't effing matter get out of the way and so I decided I would write these diaries up and I, I wrote a play that went on in, uh, in Bewley's Cafe Theatre in Dublin and I got hooked up with, uh, with Johnny Spears and Lenny Abramson and they called me in and said do you have any ideas for a feature film and I went yeah of course I do I've loads of them um, and I said this thing called Adam and Paul is between sunrise and sunset and, uh, and interestingly enough, Len really responded to it and to the, the, the scenes that I sent him. And so we set off on this journey. And one of the things that I learned was, taken on the Wittgenstein thing and encouraged by Lenny, who taught me so much about what it is to be a writer, I, I wanted to write scenes in which I pushed characters, and I've continued to try and do this in all the writing that I do, which is to push characters into what I call, and it's really pretentious, but I don't care, is I push them into what I call the borderlands of articulacy. And it's you push 
characters into an area of life that they find it impossible to speak about because they don't have the language to speak about it. So it's like saying, uh, pushing two people together who need to say, I'm frightened, I need you, I love you, I want you, but they have none of the language to say that. And out of that will come some sort of truth. And sometimes you push them into a place where language completely breaks down, at which point you just leave them in silence, which takes me right to the end of what I'm going to say, which is a quote from Wittgenstein, in which he says, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. Thank you.